You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Ben Stanton, lighting designer. This season, I had the privilege of lighting the revival of Spring Awakening on Broadway. Working with the amazing Deaf West Company has been a highlight of my career and a lesson in what makes theater powerful. I'm deeply grateful that the production and my work were recognized by the Tony Nominating Committee this year. And now here's Ken with the podcast. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kentdavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kentdavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody on the Producers Perspective Podcast. Welcome back to the show. So my introduction to today's guest was seeing him play the lead role in, as Ed Kleban in the beautiful musical A Class Act. If you don't know it, go check it out. So I remember watching the show and falling in love with this performance and with the production and thinking, huh, who directed this show? Uh-huh. And wouldn't you know it, it was the same guy. And then I looked again at the title page and noticed that he wrote it too. That talented man is none other than triple threat actor, author, director, Mr. Lonnie Price. He's here today. Welcome, Lonnie. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I have to say I co-wrote it with Linda Klein, just just a full disclosure, but thank you. We'll give her props there as well. Yes, please. Uh, so Lonnie also directed the revival of 110 in the Shade on Broadway, Lady Day at Emerson's Bar and Grill with Audra McSick-Tonys, however many she's got now. He just got back from London where he directed Glenn Close in Sunset Boulevard, which has got a whole bunch of people talking about a transfer. Maybe he'll give us a clue on that later. Directed a ton of these incredible musical concert shows like Sweeney Todd with Patti LuPone, Candide with Kristen Chenoweth, Company with Neil Patrick Harris and Stephen Colbert, and a lot more. He's worked with everybody, this guy. Lonnie. Yes, I'm exhausted from hearing that. How did you get started on this exhausted career of yours? Well... I grew up in Queens, uh, and I was taken to shows when I was a kid. You know, nice Jewish boys go to matinees of musicals. 
when you grow up in New York and your parents are uh, that inclined, that way inclined. So um, I'd been taking the theater since I was, I think for my fourth birthday, I saw Oliver, the original Oliver at the Imperial. And I just wanted to be an actor. My parents were very um, stupidly supportive of it. They, they, they loved the theater. And my mother was a frustrated actress, I think, in some ways. And my dad was a trumpet player. And um, so, uh, you know, my sister, for our birthdays, we get to see whatever hit musical happened to be around. And um, so I always knew I loved it. We had all the albums at home and that we'd play them. And so I was kind of very unifocused about it. And um, I uh, went to Performing Arts High School and um, then Juilliard um, uh, for a year. I dropped out and I started getting work as an actor. So um, that's really... Uh, before that, I, as you well know, I, I wrote to Hal Prince and worked for him in his office as an office boy after school, after Performing Arts High School. I'd go over there in the afternoons and in the summer. And um, I was a PA on Pacific Overtures when I was uh, 16 and um, watched them uh, put together that show and uh, was at the recording of the album. I mean, the, you know, Hal and Steve were my heroes. And so um, uh, I wrote them letters when I was a kid and they wrote back and sort of invited me into their world, uh, which was, um, you know, just, uh, you know, it's like a kid saying, you know, asking a kid who likes stars do you want to go to the moon and I was invited to the moon and so I guess uh, the last god uh, 40 years I've been trying to stay there um, so it's been a long it's, I've been doing this a long time uh, when I think about it and obviously you were in, uh, involved with Mr. Sondheim as an actor as well mm. one of your first big breaks as an actor oh yeah 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 sure yeah Marilyn absolutely which is a huge huge fantasy come true in fact I just finished a documentary which will be out, um, I think, in the fall, called uh, Best Worst Thing That Ever Happened. And uh, it's about the making of Marilee and what happened to all of us in it. And it comes out, I think, in the fall. So um, I've been reliving a lot of that in the last... Actually, I've been working on that for seven years. But finally, we I think we finally have a cut that we all feel good about. So I hope it'll happen. Um, no, I know it, it'll be out. But um, So yeah, that's Marilee was a huge, huge, amazing dream to get to do that. But it didn't work. No. So tell me about that experience of like, oh my God, this amazing dream. You're working with the people that invented the space shuttle to get people to the moon. Indeed. And then it didn't work. How yeah. was that for you and being well, around all of them? We were very protected. You know, honestly, I mean, Hal was very, you know, Steve wasn't around a lot because he was writing, but Hal was very, you know, um, loving to us and kept us really protected. I mean, I, I, now looking back now, because I'm a little older than they were than they, when they wrote the show uh, and directed the show, um, the pressure they must have been under must have been just ridiculous. But they never showed it, and they never let us feel like we were letting them down. If anything, it was always how, you know, certainly after the opening, Phil, he let us down. Uh, and he still feels that way. It's like he let the kids down. Um, he came to my dressing room the night after we opened, he said, um, uh, I wanted to give you a hit. I'm sorry I didn't give you a hit. I gave you, I think I gave you a good show, but I didn't give you a hit, and I'm sorry. And um, that was how, you know, but that was, the, he was, you know, like an uncle. I mean, I've known him since I was, you know, 14 years old, and uh, they were they were just great. But we didn't, we got, a, you know, we worked really hard. There were a lot of changes always. 
I think looking back on it, that they would not have, you know, given that many changes a day to adults. I don't think, I think adults would have said no, but we were too stupid to say no. I mean, we were just whatever they, you know, jump how high, you know, whatever they wanted, we did uh, as best we could. Um, so, but they worked really hard. I mean, it was a real lesson. It got postponed two or three times because the lead was fired and then the choreographer was fired and, you know, it was right in the middle of a fishbowl and they just, they just were on fire with making it better. And I guess if you ask me, the truth is I always thought they would. So I knew that it was problematic after the first preview, um, or actually after the gypsy run where it was very clear something was not good. Um, but I always thought, well, it's how Steve, they'll fix it. And I honestly never was worried about it. And, you know, really worried about it and was very shocked when, it, when the closing notice went up so quickly because I'd worked on Pacific Overtures and they ran that six months. And I thought, well, we'll run six months. I mean, you know, Pacific Overtures, that's got to be a harder sell than, well, no, apparently it wasn't. They didn't, um, you know, and Hal's often said to us is that, you know, the audiences were unhappy with it and he didn't want to put us through half houses and disgruntled audiences and he felt didn't want the kids we were the kids didn't want the kids to go through that and um but uh, we just loved doing it so much we would have done it for three people uh three people in the audience we wouldn't care uh yeah it was very it was very depressing very devastating when it closed and mostly because i just wanted to do it more i just loved doing it i mean you know you'll i knew very well as an actor i'd never get material that good and i didn't and there isn't, really. It spoils you. You know, you have Stephen Sondheim writing songs on you, and you get pretty spoiled pretty fast. Have you ever directed it? No. Would you? No. Never? No. The film is as close to it as I'm... The film about it is as close to it as I think I'm going to ever get to it. I just think there's just too much, too much in the way of me and it. And also, it's very different now. You know, they've rewritten it so extensively. It has very little to do with what we did. In, in in large ways. And um, so, um, no, I, I, I'll, once in a while I'll go to a production of it. Uh, I just saw one at Yale um, that uh, Ethan Hurd directed, who, was, who assisted me on some stuff. And uh, he did a fantastic job. But it's hard for me to look at it without just being immersed in sense memory and emotions and and not even sad or particularly depressing emotions, but I can't watch it. It's it's too um, connected. Um, and yeah, like I said, the film will be, that's my statement about the experience. And I think that's enough. When did you start to think about doing something else besides acting? Well, I, 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 only, I only wanted to be an actor for my whole life. And then I was working at some, a little theater, which is now the Citizens Brigade Theater on 28th Street. Uh, of off 8th, between 8th and 9th. And at that point, it was the American Jewish Theater. And before that, it was the Roundabout. It was their original space. And it was under a supermarket and like an 8-foot ceiling, maybe a 10-foot ceiling. You could touch the lights. Well, I couldn't, but if I stood on a chair, I could. Um, and uh, I was doing a play called The Immigrant. And um, the artistic director there, Stanley Breckner, said, do you have some suggestions? We're doing a musical next. Do you have some suggestions for us for a director? And, and I gave him you know, several, and he said, what about you? And I swear to you, Ken, it had never occurred to me to be a director, ever. It wasn't anything I had any interest in. I didn't study it. I didn't know anything about it. I don't think I particularly paid attention. 
I mean, I'd had good directors and bad directors and or less good directors, you know. And um, but I thought, wow, well, either uh, I'll be an actor who wasn't a good director, but I'll learn something, or maybe I'll like it and be good at it, and maybe this would be another thing to do. And from the minute I started, it was just, oh, this is much better. I like this much better. What do you think it was, If looking back on it now, if you could step out of that experience, mm. what do you think he saw in you that made him think you oh. could do it and do it well? No, it I wasn't mean, just a, he didn't just say, ah, Lonnie, what about you? He had a, yeah, there was yeah, a, he saw something. There. That's a, you know, no one's ever asked me that. I don't, I don't know, except that some of my friends would tell me that I've been directing for years. And I said, what do you mean? But a lot of times, you know, you'd have very, I had great directors, but I also had very ineffectual directors who wouldn't do anything or say anything. So after a little while, you go, okay, well then I think I'll, I'll come in there and then Gary, you're going to, you'll come through the window. Is that all right with you? And they'd kind of go, you know, they wouldn't really respond much. And so you wound up taking care of yourself by sometimes having to direct yourself, stage yourself, because you know, not all the time was the were the directors. Um, they didn't care about acting a lot. A lot of them got the picture. You know, they were very not into. So you wound. I wound up sort of, I guess, learning how to do that. Um, but honestly, I don't know what he saw in me. I mean, I really don't. But uh, God bless him because from the very beginning, it felt right. I mean, the great thing about directing is you're not trapped by your physicality. I mean. I, at a certain point, my hair fell out. I'm five foot six. Uh, I'm only going to play the Jewish nerd accountant in the corner. And at a certain point, I had said about all there was to say about that that style and that character. So for me, it was the roles were diminishing in terms of my accessibility, uh, my my ability to convince producers and directors that I could be other than what they saw. But when I was younger, I was playing you know, South Africans and I was playing East London kids and I was, I mean, I was playing everything. But then, you know, I direct Irish plays and I direct South African plays and I direct all kinds of plays that have nothing to do with my ethnicity. And um, that's very freeing. And the other thing I have to say is, is that, you know, I really felt sort of looking in the mirror uh, was not, as an actor all the time, was not helpful for me to grow up. I really felt in some ways I wouldn't be a man if I kept being an actor because I was always begging for a job and I was always having daddy choose me. You know, I was always, it's, it's, um, I like being the father and it suits me better than being the, um, the kid. Um, I find that a very nervous place to be, but if I'm in charge, I feel okay about that. And, and I like taking care of people. So that was a, it was a great way to have that aspect of my character uh, exercised. Um, but I remember the, the costume parade of the first show and a woman came out and I said to the designer, God, I think that's a really unattractive dress. Do you, can we do something about that? And the next day she had a new dress. And I thought, oh, well, I could get used to this. You know, as an actor, you're always going, you know, this is itchy and this is a little tight. They're going, yeah, yeah, we'll take care of it. Yeah, yeah, don't worry. Just go on. Just do your thing. Don't bother us. And as a director, you know, you just say something and some something changes and that's very heady. And powerful and a good feeling and encourages your, you know, um, critical thinking in a lot of ways. And uh, so I, I just loved it. And um, yeah, I haven't lost my love for that. But performing really was done. I was done. I had enough. 
What do you think is the most important skill that a director needs to have today? Is it, you know, they're all different. There's concept directors mm. that come up with big concept. There's visual ones. There's dramaturgical. There's ones mm. that work with actors better than others. What is what you think you need the most and what you do best? Well, I think you need a combination of all of those to a greater or lesser degree. Um, I'm best with the actors because I, 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 my feeling, honestly, is if the actors aren't good and uh, they're not making a connection with the material and the audience, you, the, rest, the rest of us doesn't matter much. A great lighting cue does not save a show and a great set doesn't. And, you know, I, there's a director, who I won't tell you his name, and he came back and he told me, oh, I just did this great production of Midsummer. The acting was terrible, but it was great. And I always thought, well, what was, now what was, what was, there's good lighting. What, what was the great production you did? Um, so to me, it's always been about, because I come from an actor's point of view, are you reaching me? Am I connecting with you? Uh, do I care about you? So to me, the acting is always the most important thing because I do really think good material and good actors and we could do it in your living room and make theater. So um, I think that's very important. Certainly the maison scène, all of that is enormously important because then all, all the designers and everybody are working on the same show and that's very important that it's the same that it's even though it's a shared vision it's one vision that is driving it and that everybody kind of falls in line to so I think that's very important having a great visual sense is important sense of movement um, in on the stage I think is important um there's nothing that you mentioned that isn't important. Certainly for a new show, dramaturgical skill is invaluable. Um, but everything you mentioned is you need some form of it or some degree of it. Otherwise, you probably won't succeed. Or you need to get good help around you and know that you don't know. I mean, it's fascinating. It's about, like, say, Jerome Robbins was, you know, on West Side Story and Gypsy, he had a director who directed the actors. Bill Daniels, William Daniels, I think, directed the actors in Gypsy, and Jerry Friedman directed them in West Side. He knew he didn't know about that, and he was smart enough and um, egoless enough, although I don't know that anybody would say Jerome Robbins was egoless, but to say, that's not my, I don't help. And I, I, I think that that's a great lesson, is when you don't know, there's nothing shameful about saying, um, I don't do this well. Uh, who does? Who could be of use, of service? So, um, anyway, I don't have a doubt on that. So you start directing, you're, you're, you're starting to build your directing resume, and then where did the writing come into all of this? Oh, yeah. Um, peculiarly, I was working with Joan Rivers on a show called Sally Marr and Her Escorts, which was about Lenny Bruce's mother, who Joan wanted to play, and who Joan knew very well. And um, we had a mutual agent, Bob Duva, who um, said, I want to get you together with Joan. And I just, I wasn't directing long. And I met her at her place across the street from the Pierre. And, you know, um, dog was there. And it, just, it was just a bizarre thing. I mean, she was in, I think it's Amy Simple McPherson's ballroom was her home. And it was just filled with, I mean, the ceiling was all painted and it was all gold leaf and it was just insane. I mean, it was just this ridiculous... And she had a butler and uh, and a maid. And, you know, there was Joan Kaminsky from uh, Larchmont uh, with the butler. 
And we just had a great time, and we started working on the play as an as a director. And then um, she, you know, it needed some work, and so I started doing some dramaturgical work. And she said, um, "Will you co-write this with me?" And I said, "Sure." And then we brought in uh, Aaron Sanders, who worked with us, and um, I became a writer. But uh, I'd always loved writing, and um, funnily enough, Jim Walton and I from Merrily wrote songs together as Charlie and Frank. Um, I actually love writing lyrics, and and Stephen Sondheim was always very encouraging of mine. I had forgotten. I found some things doing this Merrily documentary where I did some lyrics, and he was like, no, you really should do this. And stupid me, I was like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But he was really encouraging of it, and I found it too lonely, writing. I just, I like being in a room with people, and the yellow legal pad by myself for hours a day was something that I think was just too depressing to me. It wasn't, it wasn't a good fit, but I still love writing. Uh, and then co-writing on uh, the book to Class Act um, was, uh, uh, again, came about sort of like that. Do you want to direct the show and then do you want to write it? Because my ideas were always very specific and they were writer ideas about how to structure something or um, a point of view that wouldn't, that needed that person to infuse it with it if, if the writer wanted to go in that direction. Um, and then I wrote a, a show called Kiki Baby, which we did at Nymph, and um, and I've been working on that for like thirty years. I mean, just like this crazy. I'm a dog with a bone. The the, the documentary took seven years. I, class act took five or six. Um, I, uh, I, I for better or worse, I don't give up. You know, it's that Churchill thing: never give up. It's uh, I, I don't know. They must have branded me with that at birth because I'm uh, I'm a, I stick. Um, and sometimes I shouldn't, but I do, yeah. On something like a class act where, or anything else where you're wearing multiple hats, mm -hmm. how do you maintain your objectivity in those Very times? difficult. Class act was an, a, an idiot thing to do. I mean, I was really... Well, you um, did it incredibly thank well. Thank you. I really I mean, appreciate that. I really appreciate that. But we had had the lead guy was supposed to do it, and he backed out like a week before, literally like a week before, and it was at Manhattan Theater Club. And Lynn Meadow, who knew Ed Cleveland, um, and I was just desperately, we offered it to like Brian Darcy, Jane. we offered it to everybody. And Ed was, uh, you know, a slightly attractive guy from the Bronx, bald guy from the Bronx, Jewish guy who wrote lyrics. And I was offering it to Brian Darcy, Jane. you know, I was offering it to people who really, I guess, weren't right for it. And Lynn said, I knew Ed, in fact, she knew him very well, and said, um, this isn't going to fly unless that guy is right in the center of it. You're right. What do we do to support you doing that role? And this sounds very egotistical, but I did it because I wanted to protect the show because I thought she's right. And I hadn't acted for 10 years before that. I was done. I was so done. And I thought, well, I can't, I, this means too much to me. So I did it, and I had an associate director. On Broadway, Stafford Arima was my associate director, eventually. But at Manhattan Theatre Club, maybe Stafford was there at that point. Um, but it was hard on the actors. What was really bad is that you're doing a scene, and then you give the actors notes. They didn't like that that much. And I don't blame them. You know, there was nobody... You know, so in retrospect, I think it was... I think the show would have been better without me. And um, I wish I didn't do it 
in some ways, but I know it wouldn't have gotten on if I didn't do it. So it's a mixed, it's a mixed thing, but I don't recommend it. And I would never do that again, ever. It's ridiculous, lunacy. Directing, co-writing and starring and something was ridiculous, made no sense at all. So um, never again. Well, the final product was truly something special. It's Thank one of you. my, it's one of my fondest memories in the theater. Actually, there was oh, just something man. very special about. It's it. a beautiful piece, yeah. and it means a lot to me. And it's, I'm glad it meant something to you because it was, um, it was very much in my heart. I mean, that's another thing is you know it's like when you find something that you just love like that. It's um, you don't. I, I don't give up on it. You know, I just, just force it through as best I can. So I'm glad you liked it. You've been involved with a lot of revivals. How do you approach a revival as a director? What's your first step? You take something like Camelot. You did a Camelot, right? Mm. Like, what do you sit... How do you sit down and be like, okay, I'm doing Camelot. What am I going to do to make that now right. interesting today? Well, Camelot's particular place is we, we made it very multicultural. And in fact, you know, the little boy at the end was, um, was uh, of Arab descent, you know. So what we tried to do is make it not... Be, I always try and make it relevant in some way to the present. Um, and, you know, something my set designer, James Noon, taught me is you don't just, you know, do a show. And sometimes like this, too. It's not like you just do the show. It's like, what is the space the show happens in? What does it mean in this time? What does it mean in this space? Who are the actors? How do they, you know, it, you take what is there and not try and force them into making a piece of theater, but you make the piece of theater around what is there and what is real. And that's very, that has been very useful to me, is to look and see what it is I have to work with and not impose some concept on it and shoehorn something together as opposed to go, well, we're in the Philharmonic, we're at Avery Fisher, now Geffen Hall. It's something else. It's not the same as it opened at the Majestic in the 60s. It's not the same. What is it for this place? What is it when you put 50 orchestra members on stage? What does that do to it? How do the givens of each production inform the work? And how does it reflect the work and hopefully what the authors were trying to do? So each revival to me or whatever I... You know, we just finished Sunset and, you know... um it's very different than the original production, which was a little bit um, grotesque. She was grotesque and grand guignol. And, and, you know, Glenn was very open to, I said, gee, let's do something else. And she said, yeah, let's, I don't want to do what I did. And so we deconstructed it and it's much more a love story now. And, and it's sexy because they're doing it. And the difference in 1950, when the film came out between a 50-year-old and a 30-year-old, it was very, oh, it's not like that anymore. It's not, there are a lot of relationships that work with a 20-year split. And so it's about this middle-aged woman trying to fight for her life. And yeah, she's crazy and she goes crazier. But um, it's not this really bizarre story. It's a love story. It's a triangle. And... Um, and kind of moving. So we investigated the humanity of it, which is what interests me, is what's what's actually going on? What are the feelings? What do people need? What are they getting? What are they not getting? What are they frustrated about? Um, what do they want? You know, she, you know she, she's holding on to her past because she has no present, you know, and, and, and is terrified of her future. And 
a lot of people can relate to that. And certainly a lot of women in, in our country and in the UK as well, where ages, there's so much ageism going on, and particularly for women, and they're invisible. And certainly in Hollywood, you're invisible at 35, let alone 55. So it's uh, what interests me about the piece is almost always the relationships and the humanity and bringing that out. And hopefully not in a sentimental way but bringing out the truth of it and the universality of it, which makes an audience respond to it. Um, but they respond to the people. The other thing is I've in some ways been lucky, well, not lucky, but because I don't get big budgets for sets, um, you know, there's a, I think that if you give someone a suggestion of something that, in, that um, allows the audience's participation. If you give them everything and the proper ashtrays and it's exact, that's a movie. But then they don't have to work at all. But if you just drop a huge chandelier in an empty stage, they fill in the rest of it. And their participation is required and it's an active form of theater. So the minimalism that, I, that my shows have due to budgetary concerns because of these concerts or whatever I'm doing or limited runs in general, um, force me to be more creative and force the audience to be creative with me. And I think that that's real theater. I mean, I try to do that as much as I can. But investigating the um, the, um, the revivals, it's all about what's real, what is real today, and how does it relate to us today? Because I think if you're doing a museum piece, that doesn't interest me very much. Can we get a little uh, gossip on Sunset? Do we think it'll make it over the Atlantic? Oh, Glenn really wants to do it. I really want to do it. Um, the producers really want to do it. So I'm hoping it'll be okay. Um, I can't tell you when because I don't know. But I know that there were, you know, meetings this week. And we'll see. You know, I'm just, you know, it's hard to get a theater. And, and um, it would be limited because she doesn't want to do it forever. So I, I don't know. But I have a feeling it'll be here at some in some form. I just don't know when. I hope so. So you have worked with these... I can't even say stars. They're like they're constellations. They're so big. I mean, yeah. Glenn Close, Patty Lupone, all these major, major stars. Yeah. What's that like? Obviously, they're very different from one another. Yeah. I would imagine, and lots of from resume credits to egos to all the stuff you have mm. to deal with. Um, you know, I'm maybe one of the, I love stars. I mean, I, I they don't. I've dealt with some really tough ones, and so none of them intimidate me anymore. I'm not frightened of any of them. I mean, I'm not, not that any director would be frightened, but it's, um, I guess, because of being an actor that I used, I know what they're going through and I'm there to help them. And I think they know that pretty quickly that I'm not, I have no interest in, um, I'm not a thought, you know, I, I'm not like beating them with a stick or I'm, I'm, I, I'm not there to humiliate. I'm there to help them. I'm there to, I always, if they're not good, I'm not good. I only look good if they look good. So I'm their best friend. I'm just, how do, I sometimes think, you know, it's, it's like with Audra, you know, I've been given this, this gem, this insane jewel. And so my job is to set it in a way where the light refracts it most brilliantly and everyone sees how genius and how brilliant that stone is, that gem is. That's my job is to make them look fantastic. Because that's what we go to see. We want to see a great performer and a great performance. So I think they pretty much know that that's my goal. So we do it together. It's like, come on, take my hand. Let's let's figure out the best way that you're going to make 
the biggest that you're going to have a triumph in this. And um, and I love it. It's very just fun for me. And also stars are stars because they're extraordinary. They are amazing. I mean, you know, Audra, Glenn, Patty, Emma Thompson, please. You know, you're in the room with these people and they have so much to give. They come into it with just so filled with experience, richness and gifts. And it's just a, it's a pleasure to work with them. Um, I've been very lucky. So Caldwell, Eli Wallach, I mean, all of the Gabriel Byrne, all of the actors I've worked with have just, you know, it's just what a, what a gift to get to be in the room with them and to watch them put it together and to help them with it. It's, um, it's the best part to me. It's the best part. I'm just thinking about the words you've been using. You, you know, we hear about directors being called captain of the ship and all these things. And you, of course, you called it, I'm like the father. I like being the father. And you yeah. just said, I like to take their hand and do this together. Yeah. It's a real loving relationship, obviously, you have. Yeah, with I, these do. Folks. I, I do. I do. And I, and I, you know, it's fine. I, 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 mean, I fall in love with all of them. I've never really, you know, um, I'm gay, but all the leading ladies, I just fall, I'm, I, you know, you can't not be in love with Audrey McDonald. You just can't not be in love with her. You're just in love with her. I mean, how could you not be? You'd be crazy. Or Emma, or, you know, you know, it's fucking Emma Thompson. Holy shit. You know, we're, we're playing and we're, we're figuring it out. And, um, you know, Emma was a wonderful person to work with because Emma just made you feel like a genius. You know, anything you said to Emma was, that's brilliant. Well, you know, you, you then you become brilliant because you go, oh, shit, Emma Thompson thinks I'm brilliant. Okay, well, how about this? And she go, even more brilliant. You know, so you just, it's the support you got from Emma in the room made you better than you were. You know, they're all different. Oh, she's very challenging. I'm a better director because she, she doesn't say yes all the time. She says, why? Why? Um, I got to figure out why. And I got to make sure it's smart because if it's not smart, she doesn't want to do it. And she's right. So Audra makes me better. Audra totally makes me better because she's, um, you know, we, um, Lady Day was, you know, like almost like having a kid together. We worked on it just in a room all by ourselves mostly. And, you know, uh, but it's very much, um, it's really a collaborate. The one thing I will say, if I walk out of this building and get hit by a bus, the only thing I will say about the work is, is that, it's, it's all collaboration. And anybody who takes credit for anything is a fool. I can't take credit for anything I've ever done. It's not just me. It was everybody. It was everybody. It's only good. Sunset's good because the set's good. Because the lights are good. Because she's amazing. Because the rest of it's good. Because the orchestra sounds great. It's it's not any one person. You you, you know, that's that's folly. The best, and it's the best, most fun thing. The documentary had five editors. I can't take credit for this. You know, I made a mistake a lot, and then I just kept at it until the right people presented themselves, and we were able to figure it out. But I never say the documentary is mine. It's not mine. It's everybody's. It's everybody who ever worked on it. And so that's a that's a good place to be, and to be comfortable with that after all these years. The best idea wins, and it doesn't have to be mine, and it really doesn't because. I'd rather have much smarter people than me in the room so I can learn from them and we can exchange ideas and bounce off each other. So, um, yeah, it's just it's all just collaboration. You've done a lot of shows that have been recorded or captured, right? Yeah. And 
what, what do you think about this for the future of Broadway? Do you think we should be doing more of this? Do you think every show should be captured? Do you, what do you think about streaming theater or any of the, the national theater live concept? Well, you know, I filmed a lot of them, and I filmed a lot of mine. Um, and I like doing I love filming mine. Uh, mostly because um, sometimes when people direct cameras for television, they're what I call covering it, but they're not directing it. For instance, um, when you watch, uh, I'll just take one of my company with Neil Patrick Harris, a lot of people are talking, but what's interesting is his reaction to them. So I'm on him hearing what they're saying because that's going to drive the plot. Someone who was just capturing it would be on the person talking because that would be the logical way, but that's not directing it because I want subliminally you to get inside his head, which is where I think this is happening. So there's directing and there's covering. So I think when they're directed, I think they can be thrilling. I just did Gypsy with Imelda Staunton and I saw a screening of it last night on a big screen because I never could see it on a big screen. And um, you can't you can't buy a close-up what that means to see a performer that good, that committed, close-up and see both their eyes. Now, if we were... We're talking, and if there's a camera here, if it was a single, it was a theater, no camera, they just see half our face. But I'm here, and I see both your eyes. I direct stuff for the for camera that I direct for the stage, and I go, oh my god, that's what they were doing, because I didn't, get, I didn't, I only got half of it. But you get all of it, and it's when the actors are good, it's thrilling, you know. Audra on the HBO uh, Lady Day is very different. She was beyond everything on stage. It's a different kind of beyond when you're, you know, you're just looking at her eyes and seeing what's internally going on. So the answer to the question is, I think everything should be filmed. I'm so sorry that all the shows I saw as a kid are memories to me, you know. I love the Lincoln Center Library. If I die, if I ever have any money, they're getting it. They ca Those captures, and now they're beautiful. They're three cameras or two cameras, but... It's also very important that, and I said this to Patty once too, I said, they need to know what you were great as. They'll, you'll be in books of the great Patty LuPone, but if they can't see it, it won't mean as much. And it's important to capture those great performers for the next generation. I don't know who Ellen Terry was. I never saw her. I don't know who Lorette Taylor was, except for 10 seconds of a film. Why was she great? I have no idea. I just have to take it for granted. I have to make, oh yeah, I guess she was great because they said she was. But, you know, you capture Audra, you capture any of these people. And I get emails from Australia or something going, I never would have seen that. I never would have seen those people. And so I think it's a service to do it. And it's really important um, when it's done well, even better. But yeah, you answer your question, I think it's all should be, all should be filmed. And it all should be filmed well. You know, people should take the time and do it. And, you know, we I edit for, for months, those things. And um, it's real important to me that they're forever and that they that they represent what we did well. Any shows that you would love to do that you haven't yet? Is there something on your wish list? Um, I don't have a lot of that, i got to tell you. I don't really have a lot of that. Um, I'd always wanted to do a Brigadoon because I just find it moving find that whole idea of the village coming back to life for love just kind of 
swell and great. And, um, and I'd love to do an, another night music. I really love that. Um, I've kind of actually done in the revival thing most of what I wanted to. I mean, done almost all of Steve's except for Merrily, and I'll not do that one. Um, what excites me is, you know, it's kind of like performers. Like, I love looking for things for Audra, looking for things for Emma. You know, um, that excites me is that when I find an actor that I love, thinking, what else could we do together? Um, so I'm, a lot of time they're actor-inspired. Gabriel Byrne and I keep wanting to work together again. And like, what? What would be fun for Gabriel? Um, so I kind of think more as an actor, how do I get to work with these other actors again? Um, and then how to create for them? Because uh, that seems to be sort of how I do it. You got a lot of great advice when you were starting out. Any advice mm -hmm. for the 16-year-old, 18-year-old kids out there that I want to be Lonnie Price when I grow up. Get a better dream. That would be one advice. Um, what piece of advice? Um, any advice? Um, you know, it's so hard. I, I, I think it's a really hard business. I mean, I think it's a really brutal, really hard business. And what I say to actors a lot is if, if there's anything else you can do, you should do it. And do this on the side. Do this, you know, on Saturdays and on weekends and, 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 and at night, you know, and amateur theater is a great thing because no one's trying to be a star. They're just doing it because they love it. And um, I think just, I think it's really, you know, I, I clear rooms. It's, I'm not, I'm not the most positive person, even though I've been very lucky. Um, I find it, um, I think it's a very painful business, uh, a very frustrating, painful business filled with a lot of desperate people. And um, it's hard to maintain your sanity in it and your um, presence of mind. And um, I think it's really hard. So to me, it's like theater can be done anywhere. And thinking that it only happens in these 20 blocks, um, I think, is, uh, is not real. It's not true. Um, so my advice is try and, try and talk yourself out of it. And if you can't, those are the people that have to be here. But there's there's a price to be paid. I don't know anyone. I know, you know, people who are very famous. I know people who are starting out. I don't know anyone who hasn't paid a great price to be in the theater and to be part of it. There's great joy in it, but there's there's it's it ain't for sissies. It's a tough place to be, so the New York theater. So um if you have to do it, do it. But if you can do anything else, go do that and do this on the side. And you'll still love it. You won't get bitter. Okay, my last question, which is now being called my genie question. I want you to imagine that the genie from Aladdin comes to you and says, Lonnie, I want to thank you for your incredible contributions to the theater by granting you one wish. And the genie asks, what's the one thing that drives you so crazy about Broadway, that makes you mad, that keeps you up at night, that gets you so angry that you'd want the genie to wish away. And you can only pick one. Uh, I, you know, it's so easy. It's all too expensive. It's just easy. It's just, you know, you put a set into a theater for a million dollars and you take it out for a million dollars. Two million dollars of your budget has gone to put something in and take it away. There's something wrong. It's not right. Um, I'm in cabs where people talk about 
older men talk about how they used to love to go to the theater and they can't afford to, you know, talk about when they saw a pajama game or that, you know, and when's the last time? Oh, I haven't been a long time. You know, it's too, it's, um, we've priced ourselves out of the the world and uh, it's, um, I think it also means that the kind of theater we see is uh, catered in general to people who have the kind of money to pay $150, $250 a ticket. That doesn't seem to me to be very healthy. Um, so, um, I, but I think, you know, Hal Prince said many, many years ago, um, why he left the League of Theater for Producers and all that, is he says, shut it down. Let them strike. Start again. This isn't working, and it's not. It's going to get worse. But, you know, people didn't want to stop the profits of cats at that time or whatever it was. There was hundreds of thousands of dollars. Ah, just give, just give it. Just give it. It's fine. It's all right. Well, now it's a million dollars to put the show in a million dollars. And I don't blame the stagehands because I love the stagehands. But there's something wrong. And um, it does not encourage creativity. And it certainly doesn't encourage new writers and new composers and lyricists because who's going to take a chance to spend $12 million on a maybe? So then we get branded things and things that have been rehashed from other sources and things you know. And that's not the theater I grew up loving. So um, I, I, think, I think we need to stop and figure it out. I don't think that will happen because it's best season ever. You know, I love that. Well, the ticket prices just went up. Of course it's the best. You've made more money. The tickets are more expensive. But, you know, it's totally ridiculous. But it's all that sort of propaganda, too, about, you know, Broadway is doing well, but what are we putting on? And how much of it is good? And are we just catering to tourists? And I, I, I don't know. I, I think there's um, something sad. But then a Hamilton will come along and you'll go, it's alive and vital and great. Um, but um, not not enough chances being taken, and I don't blame the producers because I just think it's it's too much money. So um, when I was a kid, you know, I, I sat, I stood through Pippin for two dollars at the Imperial. I know it's a long time ago, but now it's eighty bucks or so. I don't know what it is to stand. It's a lot of money. That's too much money to spend to stand. Through. You know, how do you inspire people when? And the other thing is then they only see one show a year and then it's just it's just all bad. So if I had I wish the ticket prices were half of what they are and I wish the shows cost half of what they cost. And then I think we'd get a lot more interesting shows happening. Um that's my wish. It's my wish. I want to thank you so much for that terrific answer. And <laughs> ah, all of Do you your... agree with is that part of your genie wish? Listen, I think Hal had a very good thing going for him when he said that, you know, we, the, and it's no one's fault because the, the problem is we were built on a foundation that has crumbled a little bit. We just keep stacking floors on top of this foundation Agreed. instead of addressing the underlying issues for everybody. Yeah. Uh, and that's when you just keep building another floor on top of it and don't address what's underneath. No. And then it's years have, you know, very, yeah, yeah. Well, Maybe you'll solve it, Ken. Well, and with that, we'll say <laughs> thank you so much for, for uh, sitting down with us. Thanks to all of you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, and we'll see you next time.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 